Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good, live from Iowa Catholic Radio's Mercy Live Up Studios. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. Bud Marr. We are coming to you live, Bud, from very different worlds. Not only am I here in Des Moines, Iowa, in the central time zone, you in Pittsburgh, in the future, one hour ahead, in the eastern uh, time zone, um, you basically are living in spring, and we have much, much snow. We had, I think, five more inches of snow throughout the night. It is truly a winter wonderland, but yours is a soggy winter wonderland, I, I, I think I heard from you. Yeah, well, um, Saturday and Sunday were bitterly cold, uh, and we got we got some good snow cover. My family and I tried to drive to Mass on Sunday morning, and it was kind of apocalypse now out on the roads. But this morning, uh, I don't know, we woke up to balmy temperatures and rain, so <laughs> go figure. So do you think that's like a... I, I was wondering if like the snow, snowy, like very bitterly cold was about... Not only Sunday, you know, with uh, weather and things like that, but maybe it had to do with the Patriots winning, and you know that I know that hurts Pittsburgh fans very much. That may have contributed to things, but Coach K and the Duke basketball team passed through yesterday, so they brought uh, the glow of warmth that comes with being. I don't know what they are. I better stop there. That's right. We can only get in trouble. But, yes, yeah, so um, I'm Bo Bonner here, Director of Mission and Ministry at Mercy College of Health Sciences, Director of the Zeta Institute for Foundation and Ethics and Leadership here in Des Moines, Iowa, coming to you live from Iowa Catholic Radio's Mercy Live Up studio. You can check us out, mchs.edu, uh, com, and iowacatholicradio.com. But out there at Pittsburgh, what are you guys up to? Director of the National Institute for Newman Studies. Uh, our website is newmanstudies.org. And if if we have listeners in the Pittsburgh area, uh, we're doing a Lenten journey through Newman's sermons. So a lot of great like devotional and scholarly things going on here. Are you guys going to like live cast that so that when are you going to have just you're going to buy a GoPro? Like actually, everybody else in Nins buys a GoPro and just follows you around. What your day's like? <laughs> No, I leave the video work to John Leonetti. We're still very incarnational here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do need to get on that, I guess. Yeah, more video, more internet options. John's always in his car in the videos, too. and he's always, It's always like he's been driving around, and he's like, you know what? I just thought of a theological morsel <laughs> all of you need, so... Yeah, he needs to film one while driving. Yeah, get him in trouble, yes. <laughs> no, um, yeah, well, if you're John Leonetti and you're... Um, needing to uh, visually look at all your court fines for the tickets you got filming your show while driving, you might need printing cartridge uh, ink from Cartridge World. Cartridge World, 801 73rd Street, Windsor Heights, here in Iowa. All your printing needs, um, like we said, if Leonetti, you can print out your scripts, all of the citations in the different towns you might have, things like this. Yeah, be careful driving there because Windsor Heights, there's speed traps all the time. They will catch you. But once you get to Cartridge World, your printing needs will be covered. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually very proud of us, uh, you know, making that all work out. Also, um, always underwritten by Car- uh, Mercy College of Health Sciences, mchs.edu. Um, like we've said before, we have our biggest class starting. Uh, first time for everything in the year, bud. Uh, we ha- canceled night classes yesterday, and we had a late start today. That's how much uh, snow there is. That's how much uh, we care for students at mchs.edu we're not going to make you uh you know wake up and have to shovel snow in front of your car in order to get there uh but yeah well underway and uh you know we by that time you get close to the end of january the beginning of february i feel like um the new semester is really in a groove and people are um well on their way marching towards the degrees to be able to go out in the community and help them well, that decision is probably testimony to the fact that there are a lot of commuter students at Mercy. Um, you know, but that's a sign that if you have a busy life or work responsibilities, you know, Mercy has those accommodations. So, um, yeah, I've, I'm excited about all you, all that you guys are doing there. So, but can you tell us a little bit about who we have on the show today? Uh, maybe they'll be able to have a completely different weather. It's raining where you are, snowing here. Maybe they have, you know, uh, balmy weather. I, I don't know. Where is RJ at? <laughs> yeah, no, our guest is RJ Snell, and he works at the Witherspoon Institute, which is in Princeton. Ah. Um, but, yeah, he uh, he and Robert George. Robert George is a pretty prominent philosopher at Princeton, and um, they compiled uh, a collection of testimonies of intellectuals who have converted to Rome. So the book's called Mind, Heart, and Soul, but it has a lot of great uh, great things in there just about the process of conversion and really some very compelling um, life stories of people who came into the Catholic Church. Um, did he ask you to be in it? Because I, I, I didn't get the letter. Oh, you said compelling people who <laughs> others know. That's a good it's point. Like, yeah, RJ, what's up? You know, <laughs> Father Thomas White, Adrian Vermeil. It's right. like... Well, maybe in the in the sequel volume, you and I will find. There's the appendix. There's the supplement issue. It's like it comes with a little CD-ROM, <laughs> and you can like look on your computer at less compelling stories. Haven't got enough. Here's the B League. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's the right. bench. <laughs> uh, well, uh, <laughs> we'll talk to him about his much more compelling people uh, yeah. here after a bit. Um, but yeah, so is the book out, or is that coming out soon? I believe it's out. You know, now that you asked that, I guess Tan Books did send me um, a complimentary copy. But we'll ask, we'll get the firm word from RJ. That sounds good. And we also have now uh, taken a peek behind the veil and see why Bud's in this. All of the complimentary books. It's amazing. We see we see what you're up to, Bud. And my wife is happier. Oh yeah, yeah I'm sure. I'm that that's 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 great. <laughs> Well, this is the Uncommon Good. Stick around when we get back. Uh, we'll talk to RJ Snell. Uh, this is the Uncommon Good. We'll be back after this. If you want um, to ask any other questions about what happens behind the veil, like what other free things Bud gets for being a radio show host, uh, you, can, <laughs> you can text us on the Zip Whip line. 515 hashtag UCG. I should really point out if the FCC is listening, but does not receive other free stuff, so I'm only making fun of him. <laughs> he just gets books that he can review so he can talk about it online. Um, but if you have any questions at FCC, you can either, you know, attack us or whatever you guys do, or you can talk to us on the Zip Whip line. 
515-223-1150. If you do hashtag UCG, we'll uh, be able to answer it, even if it's after hours. Uh, but if you um, hear something on the show that you want to ask us, please feel free to do that. Um, we always love it when we have customers, uh, customers, listeners, sending in uh, what they have in mind. And uh, this is The Uncommon Good. We'll be back after this break. Impoverished children break everyone's heart, but poverty seems like such a big problem. What can one person do to make a difference? For 17 years, Blessman International's passion has been to connect the resources of our donors with sustainable programs that impact the lives of impoverished children in South Africa. Our donors are feeding thousands of hungry children every week, providing basic water and sanitation for impoverished communities, and sharing the love of God in practical ways every day. Go to www.blessmaninternational.org and make your donation today. Hi, this is Marty McDonald with McDonald Imaging Solutions. It has been my joy to support Iowa Catholic Radio's new event tents and the Pope on a Stick fan used at the Iowa State Fair. McDonald Imaging Solutions is a family-owned business with thousands of promotional items to choose from. We do custom labels, printing, branded apparel, and we provide all kinds of promotional products. I personally help any business, big or small, to build their brand with corporate apparel and promo items. McDonald Imaging Solutions, building brands, attracting new customers. Online, McDonaldImagingSolutions.com. Support for The Uncommon Good is provided by Cartridge World. Cartridge World is an industry leader delivering high-performance printing products that help you save time, money, and print great. Perfect for businesses, home offices, college students, or busy moms trying to find affordable printing supplies, including ink, toner, paper, or printers. For business customers, pickup and delivery are available. Products are guaranteed or full replacement. Cartridge World, your low-cost, environmentally friendly printing experts. 801 73rd Street in Windsor Heights, 515-564-7400 and online at cartridgeworld.com. Thank you to Confluence Brewing Company for underwriting Christ is the Answer with Father Ricardo, heard Monday through Friday at 11 a.m. Confluence Brewing Company is a local brewery in Des Moines featuring seasonal and limited-release beers. They have cans and growlers to go, apparel, and other gifts for family and friends. Live music is featured in the tap room. Confluence Brewing Company company is located off the bike trail south of Grays Lake. Thank you to Confluence Brewing Company for your support of Iowa Catholic Radio on the web at confluencebrewing.com. That's confluencebrewing.com. We're back with the Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr, happy to be with you today. But if you don't mind, can you introduce our guest for the show today? Yeah, we're honored to have on R.J. Snell. He directs the Center on the uni- uh, um, on University and Intellectual Life at the Witherspoon Institute. But before that, he was professor of philosophy and director of the philosophy program at Eastern College. Um, he's written several titles. His most recent release is um, is called Mind, Heart, and Soul: Intellectuals and the Path to Rome. R.J., thanks for being on with us. Uh, delighted. Thank you so much for having me. Good to talk. Sure. So, uh, looking at the book, um, I don't know if I said this over email, but Bo and I are converts as well. We, uh, oh, wonderful. We came into the church while studying um, theology at Duke Divinity School. But um, I saw in your bio that you're a convert, and I thought maybe the best way to start this morning is if you would be willing to share with our listeners some of your own story and how you, uh, you know, um, came into the Catholic Church. Yeah, happy to do so. Uh, it's good to be home. Uh, I grew up a, a low-church Baptist in western Canada uh, in a family that thought that Catholics were only Christians if they weren't really Catholics. Um, my mother tells stories of, of being a young girl, and this is a very small town, you know, a couple hundred people. 
she tells stories of being a young girl and, and taking food to community events, but then you had to wrap it up to take it home before the dance began because that's where the Catholics would be. Okay. Um, so I had very little exposure to, to Catholics. I, I went to Liberty University, which was Jerry Falwell's school, um, which at mm-hmm. the time in the mid-'90s was, again, not particularly Catholic-friendly. But while I was there, I took a course um, on death and dying where we read a book by Peter Kreeft, Love is Stronger Than Death. And I thought, this guy, this guy knew some things. So uh, I, while I had studied very little philosophy, um, I got into to Boston College to study philosophy uh, because I wanted to, to work with Kreeft, who became my, uh, something of a mentor and my advisor when there. And he and Tom Howard ran this group they called the St. Socrates Society. Tom Howard, of course, a, a pretty famous convert himself. Uh, when, yeah. when he converted, he was, he was let go from Gordon College. And the semesters that I was involved, it was a, a lot of young evangelicals trying to, to argue it out with, uh, with Peter and Tom and getting the short end of the argument most of the time. Because <laughs> they That's knew all awesome. of our arguments long. They saw us coming. You know, They knew what we were yeah. going to do before we got there. <laughs> um, but it's a long way from Low Church Baptist to Rome. So while I was intrigued by the arguments and somewhat surprised by the, the holiness that I was finding among Catholics, it's not what I anticipated, I just couldn't do it. It's too far. So I did what a, a lot of people from, from my generation did. They moved from, from Low Church Evangelical to Anglicanism or Episcopalianism yeah. as the, the halfway house. Um. And, of course, the Episcopal Church was, was and is fairly rapidly leaving its own heritage behind. So in about 2011, 2012, my wife and I were helping plant uh, an Anglican church in the Philadelphia suburbs that was, not, that was leaving the Episcopal Church and uh, trying to be Orthodox under a Rwandan bishop. You know, a lot of confusion yeah. about all this stuff in, in Episcopal Church. And I was at an informational meeting giving an argument about the nature of apostolic succession and realizing as I gave this argument to everyone in the room that I was talking about Rome. Um, and my wife and I, for years, whenever there was a controversial question about ethics or morality or church doctrine, we'd read the catechism. And as I was giving this pitch for why people should join this Anglican church, I realized my pitch was all about why I should become Roman Catholic. And so... Uh, while this little church plant exists and is thriving, we never actually joined it. We uh, we went to Rome very soon soon after. Well, that's awesome. And so with with this book, I'm curious, like, when did the idea of pulling the book together uh, occur? And like, how did how did that whole process where you thought was it talking to Robbie George about like it'd be great to get some of these stories out to the public? Well, I think for myself, and I think for a lot of converts, reading arguments and conversion stories from other converts plays a pretty big role. You know, there's a lot of anxieties that there are that, there, that people experience about converting, um, and so there, many converts had played a, a pretty important role in, in my own journey. So, somebody like Peter Craft or Tom Howard, um, but also somebody like Ronald Knox, Robert Hugh mm-hmm. Benson. You know, they I had read their books, I knew their arguments and their their experiences. And there's been a you know kind of a wave of convert literature. Uh, you find it in, in in French literature of the early part of the 20th century, uh, the English Revival. You know people like Chesterton and others. Um, but it seemed to me that there were stories emerging from some pretty sophisticated intellectuals in contemporary experience whose stories hadn't been told. 
Um, you know, some people, we know their converts, conversion stories, um, but there's a lot of other people who aren't necessarily known for being converts, uh, and those are the stories we wanted to tell in this book. Contemporary intellectuals and academics who don't necessarily have their stories out there. They're not, not already known uh, or famous for being converts. Right, so somebody like, like Peter Crafe, so important for me, uh, is not included in the book, um, but somebody like Karen Oberg at Harvard uh, is. Um, you know, and she's not widely known as a convert. Yeah. Well, we were talking, if you need, like, D-League people and you're <laughs> writing an appendix, Bud and I are here. I'm, you know, former Southern Baptist Okie. He's weird Nebraska stuff. We got your, your appendix <laughs> D-Leaguers if you need it. Well, you notice nobody interviewed me for the book, <laughs> right? I was, uh, nobody wanted to hear me. I was solid D-League myself. So. That's fair. Well, so funny enough, uh, so again, thanks for coming on and talking. I, so happy I, I went and looked, uh, you know, creepily as you do when you're going to interview someone, just looking at Google, all the stuff you did. I can't bypass talking about a part of your former book because I think it plays into this book. Um, your, your former book uh, is about Asadia, uh, or, you know, people know it as Sloth. Um, you have a moment where, and I, I just, I have to mention this, you, you talk about Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian yeah. and Judge Holden, who is not a convert, and I'm not sure everybody who's listening currently should l- read the Blood Meridian, but <laughs> it's really interesting because, you know, you talk about like what Cormac McCarthy was getting at with this sort of malaise of modern, modernity, right? Uh, you, you, the, the, the quote from Judge Holden, right? That is, if, if there's any like small unknown creature, it sort of can like unravel um, everything, right? He 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 wants to go and he wants to learn everything. He wants to put everything in its place. He wants to dominate everything. Um, the interesting thing about converting, and I wonder if you start to see this as a thread through a lot of these converts, is especially the quote-unquote intellectual or even ivory tower uh, converts, there was a letting go of that sort of impulse of like conquering the world intellectually. I wonder if you see that. I see that in mine with people, my conversion with people I talk to is one day we let go of the reins and said, I don't have to be Pope of my own church every morning. And this like deep belief that the world outstrips my ability to wrestle it into conformity. Do you, you see that in the process of the people that you interviewed? Yeah. To think about my own story again, briefly, my wife and I, uh, love to laugh. We're, we're trying to form this new Anglican church, and, you know, there's ten of us, right? The, the ten true believers left in the whole world, it feels like to us. And we're already starting to argue and fight about which book of common prayer we'll use. And so pretty soon there's only three true believers left in the whole world, and, you know, and suddenly you realize this, this can't be. I need to learn docility. Right? I need to be teachable, and I need to trust the, uh, the tradition, and I need to trust those who, who've come before me. So I think docility, um, while it's certainly it's not a turning off of the intellect, it's, it's not just a blind letting go, or right. it's informed by reason, it has its evidences, is nonetheless a, a virtue that you see throughout, throughout these stories. Hedley Arcus, we, we interview in the, in the book, he a, was a professor at, at Amherst for many years and a, a very famous proponent of the natural law. Um, his book, First Things, for which, as I understand it, the journal First Things got its title. Yep. Um, he, he, he moved from Judaism to, to Catholicism, and the, the language that he uses when he describes his movement there was his recognition that the Church was the only truth-telling institution that remained. And so for him, and indeed for a lot of converts, it's not as if they proceeded inductively. They looked at the list of, 
you know, a hundred disputed points between Protestantism and Catholicism or something, and then made the Church prove itself on all of those hundred points, and when they were all checked off, they, they gave in. I think for a lot of people it's an experience of the Church knows of which she speaks. She has the right to teach this, and I do not have the right to judge. I have to, to let go, in your language, or be docile in mine, and uh, be teachable from someone who already knows what's happening. Yeah, I had a chance to see um, and, and talk with Hadley uh, many moons ago. It was a conference on religious freedom. And it's just interesting you point that out because I think, you know, he, of course, the man can marshal a thousand arguments. He's brilliant. Oh, he's and, brilliant. Yeah. And everybody's, you know, asking them these specific questions. And, and it got to the point where, um, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's that point where, People are asking the the brilliant person in the room, like, "Can you just solve everything for us? Like, we get it, but like, give us the fifteen things that have to be done." And he gave an answer like that. He said, "Ultimately, what happens, everybody, is do we trust what the church has always said?" And it's funny because, like, you, in you, some portion of the room, people find like the light came on, and they're like, "Oh, this is right." But a certain portion of the room were the rich man who went away sad because they had many things. Yes. And I think it's interesting with the approach of your book that maybe that's some of the response that will happen, but that's actually the response that a book doesn't need to be afraid of, right? That some people will read these finally and they'll go away sad because they have many things. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it seems to me one of the tasks of the church at the moment is to not necessarily please everyone, to not amend and bend and accommodate but to simply and calmly state what the Church knows to be true, just as Jesus often does. We, we, we often in the, in the Gospels see Jesus state the facts, to state the truth of things. Uh, and as you say, many go away sad. Uh, you know, the teaching in the Eucharist. This is a hard teaching, they, many of them say, and they, and they depart. Or the rich young ruler has many things and departs. I think one of the Church's winsomeness, or one, one of the things which makes it so winsome, Kreeft used to tell me this, is that it's just there. It's been there for a long time. It'll be here long after I'm gone. And there's a sense in which the Church isn't all that concerned to make me happy. It just states calmly what it knows to be true, and it and invites me in. Uh, and I, I think a lot of these converts have that similar sort of experience of the, the sheer facticity of the Church in her unrelenting, calm statement of the truth. Yeah, RJ, I don't know um, what your experience exactly was like in terms of like having conversations with your family or close friends about becoming Catholic, but there's, there's a line in the book from Father Thomas Joseph White where he talks about um, the process of becoming Catholic is something more assimilative than it is destructive. And I've kind of puzzled over, and I, Bo, I'd be curious if you wanted to jump in too, that, you know, I think sometimes with my own families, the difficult thing is usually conversion means the destruction of something else, and or in yeah. some cases it does. Like uh, you're you're rejecting something that you previously clung to. Whereas when you talk about um, persons who go from Protestantism to Catholicism, a lot of them say like like Hadley and I think Father Newhouse said something similar that they became the Catholics they already were. Um, I, I don't know. Did you have any thoughts on? Uh, Father White's comment there about the process being assimilative. Well, I think it's perhaps especially for Protestants of a of a certain bent, you know, fervent evangelicals, 
they, they have faith. And, you know, one of the things that's been pleasantly surprising to me about my own entrance into Rome was how non-triumphalistic my, my Catholic friends were uh, about my conversion. Very, very few people told me, you know, at last you found faith and you sort of left heresy behind. Almost everyone told me, you know, welcome home, you had faith, now you have the fullness of faith. And many of them, in fact, warned me or counseled me to be grateful for my upbringing, to be grateful for the, the men and women and pastors and parents who taught me faith, you know, at my mother's knee and pastor's office and so on. Uh, and I, I found that to be very helpful in, in dealing with my parents, who, when I made the call to tell them, I, I really suspected they, they wouldn't talk to me for a while. Mm. And instead, you know, I was able to have a, an honest conversation with my father, who was very gracious about it, uh, and who told me that he trusted me and didn't understand, but he trusted me. I told him I was doing what he'd always taught me to do, um, to follow Jesus, yeah. to follow the truth, and to be obedient to the truth of Scripture as I understood it. Uh, so, you know, that's an assimilating, that's a, a learning more, going deeper, recovering more, coming home kind of thing, as opposed to a rejection. Uh, and, and I think that has uh, eased the way with friends and family. Uh, you know, interestingly, a whole number of friends and family have, have followed Amy and I into the church. Well, I think that this goes back again, sorry to connect, you know, all of your works together into this, like, thread that maybe you don't think belongs there. But what I see is your other book talks about, you know, an empire of desire. And I think a lot of people only have sort of consumerist choices as the model for why you would go one thing for another. So when you go, you know, Protestant to Catholic, the idea is you're like, I don't like Coke anymore. I'm a Pepsi man or yeah, something, exactly. something right. like this. And so I can understand why we have... Um, paltry moral language to conceive of something like um i either recognize something i always was or um you know the the way that i always thought about it is uh you you just you did what the people before you told you to do but you did it you know fully and all the way in full blossom or um i always said this about stanley Hauerwas, who was my advisor at Duke, uh, you know, he, he had us read a lot of Wittgenstein, and there's the point in Wittgenstein where he says, okay, after you read this book, I think it's the Tractatus, it doesn't really matter, he says, after you read this book, it's like a ladder you have to climb, and then you push it away because you don't need it anymore. Sure. And I think that a lot of converts, that that's what happens is um, they really love and appreciate the ladder, but it's not something that you're going to navigate constantly. It was, it was so, at any rate, I, I think that that's the problem sometimes is the lack of good language to even conceive of what something like a conversion is in the modern world. I mean, even conversion is, is probably the wrong language if one is already a baptized Christian and, and uh, comes to Rome in, in some ways. But yeah, I, li I like your, uh, your, li your, your point about consumerism. You know, you're not sort of move from a Coke to a Pepsi man. One of the things I'll often counsel friends or, or students or mentees who are thinking about coming to Rome is, don't think of this as a church shopping experience where now you found the church which meets all of your needs and does, you know, does everything right the way you hope it would be. Um, in many ways, Catholic parish life can be somewhat disappointing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's an understatement, right? You know, if you're an evangelical who's used to small group and friendship being formed at your local congregation, parish life in a larger city can be a little disappointing when you don't know anyone. Or if you're an Anglican who's used to the wonderful choral tradition, uh, you know, Catholic music can be um, 
a challenge, a proof that purgatory is real kind of thing. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's here right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's here right now, etc. Or, you know, a lot of people, who, intellectual types who read their way into the faith, you're not going to find Aquinas and von Balthasar sitting in the pew next to you. You're going to find an ordinary Catholic person who may or may not know. So you're, you're not finding the right church shopping experience you're coming home as a docile son and daughter of the church uh, who desperately needs the sacraments and is a sinner. And this is not that you're suddenly a Pepsi man because it meets your needs. It's because it's true. Well, and I think uh, we're, we're getting ready on the uh, to come to the break, and so there, there's a lot of stuff we're setting up um, You know, when we get back from the commercial break. But I, I like what you're pointing out is people, I, you know, you can even prepare yourself for this, um, but there's a difference between being told and then experiencing it. Because you hear people go like, all right, not everyone in the pews of von Balthasar, not every, you know, priest or bishop is John Henry Newman. And you're like, yes, you're right. And it still takes about five years to sink in like, no, they they really meant that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how many of my friends who were Catholics when, when I said I was coming home would say some, some version of the following joke. Come on in. The water's terrible, but it's home. Yeah, the, the water's tepid. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, like I said, we're we're getting ready to go to break. Um, it's been fantastic, uh, wonderful things uh, so far. Real quick, if you want to give a plug uh, before the break, where would people go most easily find this book or more information if they wanted to look it up? So the book is Mind, Heart, and Soul, Intellectuals in the Path to Rome. It's published by Tan Books. So you can find it at Tan Books' website, Tan St. Benedict's. Most Catholic bookstores of the larger sort will have it, uh, as will the various online booksellers. Uh, it's readily accessible there. So, like I said, he's going to join us after the break, and we appreciate that as well. So stick around. This is The Uncommon Good. We'll be back with R.J. Snell talking about conversion and really hitting conversion and its connection to the common good when we get back from these messages. <laughs> Folks, if you want to make sure to follow what's going on here in Iowa Catholic Radio and in the Diocese of Des Moines, it's easy to do. All you have to go is find our social media. Um, if you don't know what that means, go ask someone under 25. Just go up to that 25-year-old and say, hey there, kid, uh, how do I get connect to the ye old internet? I've heard it's the bee's knees or whatever your language is. And you go up there, and they'll go to Facebook, and they'll look at Iowa Catholic Radio, and they'll follow, hit the follow button for you. It's as easy as that. You can go to Iowa Catholic Radio uh, on Twitter, which is at IA... Uh, what am I messing it up? IA Catholic Radio. Yeah. Uh, you can follow there as well. You can also sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter um, that comes in your uh, mailbox. It doesn't bother you too much. It just lets you know what's going on on the radio station and in the diocese. It's easy to be connected here in the Diocese of Des Moines and to know what's going on with iowacatholicradio.com. If you haven't, the, the website's not new, new, but if you haven't been up there for a while, it's easy to navigate. We got beautiful pictures of our very beautiful people working behind the boards. Jimmy's shaking his head at me, but he's not up there. Oh, that's that was a... I did not mean to make that sound like it did. Um, but you can go there, Iowa Catholic Radio, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and this is The Uncommon Good. Stick around. We'll be back after this commercial break. 
Are you struggling with drugs or alcohol? Have the same old programs led you to the same old places? Welcome to St. Gregory Recovery Center, the new standard for recovery. St. Gregory is a faith-based program located just outside of Des Moines. Our unique non-12-step approach is different than most other programs. We're designed to help you strengthen your body, mind, and spirit. Don't let your addiction define you. It's time to get you excited about life again. For more information, on the phone, 888-724-3342. That's 888-724-3342. Why give to the Catholic Tuition Organization? To help families who want to send their kids to our Catholic schools and just can't afford it. Some donors like to give part or all of their required minimum distribution from their retirement account. The 65% Iowa tax credit you receive are a tax benefit you just don't want to pass up. Ask your tax advisor or contact us online, ctoiowa.org. The bottom line, it's for the kids and their future. Support for The Uncommon Good is provided by Cartridge World. Cartridge World is an industry leader delivering high-performance printing products that help you save time, money, and print great. Perfect for businesses, home offices, college students, or busy moms trying to find affordable printing supplies, including ink, toner, paper, or printers. For business customers, pickup and delivery are available. Products are guaranteed or full replacement. Cartridge World, your low-cost, environmentally friendly printing experts, 801 73rd Street in Windsor Heights, 515-564-7400 and online at cartridgeworld.com. Thank you to Spec USA for their support of Iowa Catholic Radio. Spec USA, we make concrete comfortable. The third annual Green Gala is February 9th. St. Luke the Evangelist Catholic School is hosting an evening of dinner, dancing, wine pool, live auction, and silent auction. The event will be held at the Courtyard by Marriott in Ankeny, 2405 South. Southeast Creekview Drive. Tickets are available through the St. Luke the Evangelist Catholic School website. All proceeds benefit St. Luke the Evangelist Catholic School. Thank you, Spec USA, for their support of Iowa Catholic Radio. Back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. But if you don't mind, reintroduce our guest to the show. Yeah, we have back with us R.J. Snell, who works at the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton. He received his Ph.D. from uh, Marquette University, taught philosophy at Eastern University, and he's recently helped publish Mind, Heart, and Soul, Intellectuals in the Path to Rome. R.J., thanks for being back with us. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, gentlemen. So, R.J., when you step inside the octagon that is the uncommon good, (laughs) we like to... uh, uh, keep it a little bit lively in the sense that, um, Bo, I, I, I say to Bo, like, should I prep a bunch of questions for the show? And he says, like, no, like, it's more conversational and energetic if we just kind of see where things go. So I, I'll warn the listeners, or warn you, I guess. I didn't exactly, like, uh, contextualize this beforehand, but your book, the book that you've published is, um, very much focused on conversion. But one thread that I saw running through it is, you know, like, the church has always been committed to faith and reason, and we can't give that up. With the show like ours, um, where we try to talk about how all these things relate to the common good, I guess one question comes to mind, and that, you know, like, looking at our culture today, it seems like rational discourse is maybe on a lifeline. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, You're more optimistic than I am. Yeah. Oh, I know. I could state it more starkly, especially... That is the optimist of the show, by the way. I am, for sure, <laughs> after the last ten days or so. But I guess for you, like, where do you see our Catholics, like, how do we, how do we enter the public square and engage in rational discourse and not, not give up our principles, but do that charitably and, uh, maybe even like swimming against the stream of how conversation happens today? 
was it was it Chesterton who has that line where he says that the modern person hoped to knock off the mitre of religion and ended up knocking off its head? Right, so it was trying to get rid of authority and ended up just knocking off the whole head mm-hmm. instead of just the hat. If not, I, I think we should make the apocryphal writings of Chesterton and yeah. you can that start it off. There. That belongs too good, too good to check. Too good to yeah. check. <laughs> That's right. I think Chesterton said that. It seems to me that as we're living in a, living in a time in the West, that as religion recedes in its its persuasive power and authority in people's lives, it's not that they're becoming more reasonable, right? The old Enlightenment hope was, well, if we just got rid of this superstition, everyone would become rational. It seems to me that as we as we lose religion, we're we're also losing reason. Um, you know, my co-editor of this book, Robbie George, is a, you know a very important political philosopher and Catholic intellectual. Will say that we live in a, a, an age which is dominated by sentiment or emotion. Or the the great Catholic philosopher Alistair McIntyre will say that uh, ours is an emotivist age where protest and indignation will become the means of public conversation, and and we see this um, outrage and indignation is everywhere. So I think there's a sort of big answer and a small answer to the question, and, and answer not in the sense of magical solution. Uh, the small answer is, well, Catholics should have the virtues of Catholics. They should be humble and kind and long-suffering and also courageous and tough-minded. Um, the, the big answer is one, I think, of trying to reveal and bear witness to the fact that the universe is ordered and good and intelligible, and that human beings are meant for order and beauty and the intelligible uh, and community and redemption. You know, it seems to me that so much of the the endless rage we see uh, is a very natural byproduct of of those who don't have hope, you know, in the theological sense of hope. They may have a, a kind of unfounded optimism, but they don't have hope and they don't have a sense that all things in the end shall be well, and as a result, our own role is um, not uh, not everything depends upon us, and not all of life is dependent upon the next accomplishment or emancipation or a bit of liberation or a bit of well-being, because life is more than that. Life includes ultimate things, first things, and we can, in fact, get those. Um, so I think there's a big picture and a small picture there, and, and neither of them give me a whole lot of comfort that in you know we have a five-year plan to recovering good discourse or something. But nonetheless, I think that's the way. You know what's interesting about this is there's one way in which um, you know me uh, trying to be self-critical. I understand why we're worried, but then I read a lot of history and I go, well, you know, people are being nasty to, to each other online, and certainly I don't think this is great, but. They're also not like marching armies to each other's cities to like burn it down. Like I'm, I'm teaching Dante right now, so I'm always all like, "Yeah, guys, you think public discourse is bad, but you know it's not the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, right?" Right. Um, but in a way, it's almost like that's almost the problem. And I am no way saying like life was better when people would like take out each other like physically through violence when they had problems. But it gets to the heart of what you're talking about. It's it's strange that. People, by their philosophical, uh, where they comport themselves, like you said with Robert George, that they don't have hope, they have optimism. So when you frustrate their optimism, they don't have a commitment anywhere. And so it's, it's like they, they can't even bring themselves to like violently fight anyone. 
And so I guess it's, I'm glad there's not blood being shed, but I think that that's why there's this underlying sense of somehow it's worse. It's not worse that like people don't get killed, but there's something more, you know, looking off into the abyss and niching about it. And I think that that's maybe what we're all worried about is when all of these people finally do decide there's something to commit violence over. And all you have to think about is uh, the bill they passed in New York about abortion up until, you know, someone's born. Um, the violence sort of sprays out even worse. Like there's not even uh, sort of, um, you know, ways for the steam to be let off a little bit. I think that that might be part of what converts hopefully get to do is not the calming effect, but the sort of bewildering effect. I mean, this goes back to something you said earlier. The church just always outlives its executioners. And it's it's like maybe the best the best we can do in 2019 is just frustrate the devil that we're still around, and that kind of takes the sort of glory out of it. Like you said, there's not some five year plan where we conquer everything, but but the devil, you know, the in many ways the the way to get to the devil's heart to make him sad is just to to stick around. And uh, I just wonder if when you're talking to these people you start to get this sense, like this bewildering fact that someone like Hadley Arcus is still in academia after all these years or something like that. Benedict XVI somewhere says uh, that nature has become a blunt instrument, meaning reason and, and so on, is, is not as sharp as it used to be, uh, and that the, the main resource is available to the Church now to bear witness. And it's interesting he uses the, the kind of language of giving witness or bearing testimony is the beauty of, of the Church, uh, particularly it's the treasures of the past, uh, and, uh, and the existence of the saints. Um, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, in Screwtape Letters, somewhere has Screwtape write Wormwood that he can't allow his patient, uh, the one he's trying to seduce, uh, just innocent pleasures, in, including ones of laughter. The way I put those two together is um, the saint who laughs uh, or the saint who is unafraid uh, of his cultured despisers is a real irritant or a burr under the saddle to those cultured despisers. You know, when, when, I, uh, when news of my conversion came out, I had a, a friend who said, look, it'd be one thing for you to be uh, a sort of post-Protestant, mainline Protestant, right, a sort of post-Christian Protestant. I'm fine with that. But a Catholic, I mean, what could be worse than that? You believe in all of these strange superstitions and authorities. Um, and I laughed about that. I said, no, that's one of the main reasons uh, I'm going home, is because it's so weird uh, and so counterintuitive to our current expectations um, that it's a kind of a liberation or emancipation from, from the crushing uniformity of the time. And that bothered him so much, could not let that go. And I think that's a real tool for us, just to be unafraid that we're here even to celebrate some of the, the, the oddities of things. Uh, uh, one of my friends who, who helped guide me into the church said that when she, by the time she became an old woman, she hoped that she had enough faith to believe in every Marian apparition and every relic and every sort of oddity of the church that she didn't have it now. Um, I think there's nothing to be afraid of there, to sort of in good humor laugh at the devil and his, uh, his friends because we're just here, and we'll outlive them, and it's somewhat humorous that they think they're going to win. Yeah, you should just, after you gave that conversation, you should have said, and here's a green scapular. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. RJ, I, mean, I know, um, when I entered oh, the ahead. church, you know, you, you, uh, you have to affirm that you believe all that the church teaches. And I remember at the time thinking, I do, I affirm all that the church teaches. 
Uh, nonetheless, here are two things that I wish the Church did not teach. I'm going to believe it, believe them, yeah. because the Church teaches them, but I, I wish the Church did not teach them. And they're, you know, sort of the, the hard, odd Marian dogmas, two of them. Uh, and now they, they are some of my most cherished, lo- beloved dogmas, and the sort of thing that I often lead with when I'm talking to my Protestant friends of, don't you, too, don't you wish that you also believed in the Immaculate Conception? <laughs> yeah. Don't you wish you had that? Um, I think we, we just, we're too afraid and too reticent about the hard things of the faith. They're beautiful. Well, I know uh, I've heard different reactions to this comment, but uh, Cardinal George from Chicago, before he died, he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to die peacefully in my bed. My successor will die in prison, and his successor likely a martyr. Um, and that's probably too apocalyptic of an intro, but I'm curious your thoughts. So speaking about how, like, the Church runs kind of counter to some facets of our culture today, do you think someone like Robert George, is he the last kind of, like, Catholic philosopher that will teach at a place like Princeton? Or how, like, working at the Weatherspoon Institute, you know, what kind of presence do Catholics have on campus there, and how's the sort of, like, relationship to the culture at, you know, an Ivy League uh, university? Yeah, you know, Princeton is sort of a, a unique place. Uh, Princeton is often described as uh, the most, of all the Ivies, the, the most friendly or at least the least hostile to religion. And I think a, a place like Brown, uh, you know, Father T.J. White in his interview talks about his experience at Brown. I think it might be pretty, pretty difficult there. But, you know, we, we know and we're finding all sorts of quiet but nonetheless serious and unafraid Catholics and uh, friendly Protestant uh, faculty members at, at some of the most prestigious universities. Um, and increasingly, they're very sophisticated, and their students are very sophisticated. They know the challenges facing them both politically and um, intellectually at the Contemporary Academy. But they're out there, and they're as, they're as good and smart and sophisticated as they've ever been. So I think we can expect a, a growing kind of anti, particularly anti-Catholic prejudice uh, among our the, the great and the good of our time. Um, and yet, there, boy, there's a there's a lot of really smart people out there who are well placed at uh, at very prestigious elite institutions. So they're there. Um, they can have a lot of challenges facing them, but I don't think that we've seen the end of the Catholic intellectual. Yeah. I mean, the, the the rude comment I have is like, I'm just more worried about intellectuals in general, not just the, the Catholic one. I mean, again, I'm oaky white trash, so I'm all like, who goes to Brown? So I'm the wrong person to ask. But I do think that there's a way in which um, when you when you start imagine, like, talking about how people imagine themselves, that, that to me starts to be the interesting end around that might happen. Um, you know, Catholics can still make people mad, whether it's we're misbehaving or, you know, people show videos of us, edited or not. There's a way in which it's kind of nice to realize that um, Catholics still matter enough for people to spit vile, at, uh, you know, just anger at them where, uh, you know, increasingly are people going to care about what people from Brown and Penn say? I mean, even within the Ivy Leagues, right, it's starting to be, um, you know, what are the... There's only like four places you can go and be on the Supreme Court, right? It's it, it so that sort of the intellectual life, this dream of America, where we have a sort of um, not aristocracy, but you know, like these nice democratic elites um, telling us all these nice things. 
and you know the idea was always like, well, we're going to have newspapers and then TV and then we're going to have social media and we're going to distribute all this good stuff. And instead, it's like cat videos and hatred. <laughs> so you know, it, it, it's funny how the, the the best thing going for us about evil people is like Boethius says, they never can get what they want and they always mess it up. They always overdo it where they could just actually just if they would settle down enough they might actually mow us all under and the great thing about god is he's a show-off and he could actually just only choose really great saints but he decided that he wants you know d-leaguers like bud and i uh and 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 people listening to be the front line of his victory so I, i think sometimes it's good for us to go the sign of the times realize things are getting tense and worried, but we really need to cultivate that sense of if people are getting angry, maybe the gospel's alive again. And I wonder sometimes if, you know, the the intellectual life, the the people shown in this book, are the front line of some of that. Well, if the salt loses its flavor, it's to be thrown out, our Lord tells us, right? And and, and salt's to be noticed, Um, we know. It's supposed to play a role, even a, even a curative and even a kind of irritating role. I actually take great comfort, uh, as, as I think that you do, um, from what, what you said, about the fact that the, the Church can still uh, cause so much ire, arouse so much ire among the great and the good, that there's still a um, kind of haunting of the Church. Uh, I'm always fascinated in movies now to see when Catholicism is portrayed. You know, the, yeah. the priest will always be a terrible, terrible figure in the movie, right? Never, never remotely sympathetic. But I'm also intrigued that the church they will show in the background will be a pre-Vatican II oh, church yes. <laughs> with altar rails and raridos and the real candles, not the, the, the electric ones that you push the button. Yeah, even our uh, enemies realize Gregorian chants the way yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And there, there will be incense in the background and, and so on. I think one of the things that I take great hope on is a growing awareness. I see this a lot among the younger intellectuals that I know and work with, you know, people 35 and younger, that they know the experiment of accommodation and assimilation is over. You know, the old hope that if the Catholic was just a really, really ordinary American, right. that they would love us. That's not true. Um, insofar as we've assimilated, we've lost the faith, and they still hate us anyway. Yep. Uh, it's not as if they, we became respectable. You know, we joined the country club, and then they accepted our weird ways. Right. We joined the country club, and they still demanded that we reject our weird ways. I think there's a sense of, the among the young, they know that this is a sign of contradiction. They know that this is a choice they have to make. It's not just that they're Irish and so they're Catholic, or they're Italian so they're Catholic anymore. They're making a choice, they're making it at some cost, and they want the faith to have a little zazz to it. You know, Bishop Barron talks about the beige Catholicism of the last few decades, mm. you know, just colorless, tasteless, odorless. The young intellectuals I know, uh, and indeed the young, just the young Catholics, intellectual or not, that I know, don't have a whole lot of patience for that. They want technicolor Catholicism. Well, you know, <laughs> another work, I don't know if I can like widely tell everyone to watch, but The Punisher has started its second season, and they have this sort of like evangelical character who's evil, but like they're like, people won't understand he's religious. You better give him a white collar and a mostly black suit. So like, even when it's not Catholics, they're like, uh, make him look like a Jesuit from the 30s. They, and, and that sort of moral imagination where even our enemies sort of... <laughs> see us that way um i I think you're i think you're exactly right i I think um 
the way I like to put it is we high art and kitsch can save us. It's the middle that's the worst. Like when people go like, oh, you know, here's this person who, you know, has this really, you know, kitschy, sacred heart. We should replace this with like a nice print in a frame of some other work. And I go, no, 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 that's that's you wanting to be respectable. If you're going to spend money, like actually go support an artist or realize, right, that, that poor people um, and their devotion to what you would think is this like suboptimal art. I mean, it's a real devotion. This wanting it to be respectable is the problem. And I think that that's exactly right. And that's how you were putting it is the time for respectability is gone away. The time now is how do we, how do we, how do we stand out the way that God has always wanted us to stand out? So this has been, the the church has always been very good at the very high and at the very low high culture and folk culture. And the American experience of the last decades has been bourgeois middle culture. And that is failing us uh, almost entirely. Yeah, Christopher Dawson wrote um, Christianity in the Bourgeois Mind, and it's almost like American Catholicism read it and were like, well, we'll do the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they uh, misunderstood his point. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> Dawson's a great example. When he converted, his mother, who was, you know, sort of an aristocratic English uh, woman, said, oh, Christopher, now you'll go to church with the help. <laughs> yeah. But that was that that was Jesus's way, wasn't it? Oh yes, <laughs> this has been fantastic. Like all of our great interviews, I really feel like we're only getting started. We could go for a full hour, but we got to let you go. Um, but before we do, beyond thanking you, please let people know um, the book and maybe where they can find other work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, the book is Mind, Heart, and Soul: Intellectuals in the Path to Rome. Sixteen interviews with some prominent uh, intellectuals done by uh, other converts. Many of the interviews are done by other converts. It's done by ten books. Available at the big online bookstores, many Catholic bookstores, and from Tan Books uh, itself. Uh, the previous book that you that you mentioned was my book, uh, Achadia and its Discontent, con- Discontents. Uh, that's from uh, Angelico Press, which is uh, available from Amazon and other places as well. Uh, of course, my co-editor for the book Mind, Heart, and Soul is, is Robbie George. I would encourage you to read uh, many of his books on abortion or embryonic destructive research or uh, the nature of marriage. Uh, he's a giant and, and someone to know. Thanks so much for having me and for uh, letting me talk about the book. Very grateful. Thanks, RJ. Yeah, God bless. Thank you so much. Well, bud, uh, like I said, we're here at the end. So may Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts and our family, our city, our state, our nation, the world, the universe, the whole kitten caboodle. This is the Uncommon Good. We'll be back next week. Bud, if people want to not only follow what's going on physically here in the Des Moines Diocese, but want to follow along with the show, what are some of the things that they can do to be a part of our ministry here? Yeah, you can start the day with Sacred Scripture at 5 a.m. That transitions to the Rosary, um, Divine Mercy Chaplet at 3, and then um, in the evening with prayer at 9.30, there's the Rosary again, and then followed by a, a Gospel Reflection by Father Andrew Winchettle. Fantastic, but I'm actually I'm looking at the news that's happening, and there's something wonderful happening. So, oh. Man Up West Power Lunch at St. Francis of Assisi, February 8th at noon. Um, so, it's going to be me and uh, our good friend, uh, Cheryl Overmeyer, who's from DePaul. Um, they can register at iowacatholicradio.com. The good news is the free lunch is from Chick-fil-A, so the title is Virtue, Masculinity, and Narrative. But I hope I had you at Chick-fil-A, dudes. So, I hope to see all of you February 8th. Um, Chick-fil-A, yeah, it's me talking, but really Cheryl is the big draw because she is a wizard when it comes to virtue, and uh, it's going to be a great time, so you want to go do that. Iowa Catholic Radio, also the Spring Carathon, February 18th through the 22nd. 
Would you join us on our mission to save souls with a $30 mon- uh, monthly annual gift? Your financial support keeps Iowa Catholic Radio on air with local programming to share Christ. And you can actually already securely online donate iowacatholicradio.com, the radio Iowa Catholic Radio app, or, of course, 515-223-1150. We have a ladies' mosaic luncheon on February 21st at St. Augustine's at 1130 um, with the speaker and author John Pridmore. And then the Iowa Catholic Men's Conference, March 30th, St. Francis of Assisi. Speakers are Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, um, author, evangelist, and preacher, co-host of EWTN's Morning Glory, um, heard weekday morning on Iowa Catholic Radio, and uh, Deacon Randy Keel, marriage and family counselor. And again, register, find out more on iowacatholicradio.com. Like we said, this ministry is more than just people here talking on the air behind the boards, in the offices. It's you. We cover your prayers. If you want to donate, like we said, the, the Carathon's coming up, but always feel free to give to us. Otherwise, folks, we want you to have a good week. Bud, uh, enjoy the rainy season out in Pittsburgh. Well, I'm, I'm praying for you and your family. I have the new arrival soon. So, Oh, yeah, we do. We have kid number five. Yeah, so uh, if, you, if you listen and you hear um, only Bud with a co-host, I have not been kicked off the show. Just helping out with a new baby. So this is the Uncommon Good. God bless for Bud Marr. This is Bo Bonner. We'll see you next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. Just search for The Uncommon Good.